welcome everyone. It's great to see so many um, new and familiar faces. Welcome to HSF. I want to start with something that um, perhaps takes a little bit of a different meaning at the moment, but um, I would like to start by acknowledging um, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my, pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, the tagline for today is connecting the dots. Um, as I'm sure you've all seen in the press, there's a lot of seminars and there's a lot of reading on specific risks, specific litigation risks that are out there. And there's a lot of um, talk and discussion about insurance and how that can help to mitigate some of those risks. But what we found, what doesn't exist that much is actually putting the two together. So this is the litigation risk and this is how you can mitigate it including through insurance. So that is what we're hoping to do today, to talk a little bit about those litigation risks, liability risks, and then what we, can we do um, to address those. Um, and we thought we'd do that on three topics that are on vogue or you know everyone talks about at the moment, which are ESG, cyber, and class actions. So that's quite packed. Um, we've got our experts here. Um, and I will briefly introduce the panel. We're very, very lucky to have Paul Lewis here with us today. Um, Paul is the managing partner, joint managing partner for disputes at HSF. Um, but I think it's fair to say he's an insurance partner at heart. <laughs> um, he is based in London and has led the, the, our global insurance practice in London for many years and has, of course, a wealth of experience in particular in policyholder claims, including um, running the FCA test cases in, um, in London. Um, then we have Mel Gladstone, who um, is a partner here in the disputes team in Sydney. She focuses on class actions, both shareholder and product, um, and also has um, a, a practice in um, criminal and civil investigations and regulatory proceedings. Um, then we have Mark Smythe, also a partner in the disputes team. You'll find that we're all disputes lawyers, right? <laughs> so a partner in the disputes team, and Mark um, focuses on uh, regulatory disputes and inves investigations as well as public law. And um, I think it's fair to say most of your time at the moment is spent on ESG matters, um, providing advice, but also defending um, proceedings in the ESG space. Um, Guy Nabra. Many of you will know Guy, um, special counsel um, in our disputes team, focusing for over 20 years on um, insurance matters, contentious and non-contentious. Um, he provides an end-to-end service um, for policyholders from the advice at um, renewal, but also all the way through to claims. I'm Anne Hoffman, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a disputes partner as well and I focus on regulatory investigations, proceedings, and um, insurance claims. So um, I will try to moderate. I think we'll have a little bit of a swap over in the middle, um, and um, we'll hopefully, uh, may provide my observations from time to time as well. Um, I should flag that um, we are recording the session, so if anyone would like to watch it again, it will be made available after, the, after this. Um, but yes, so um, we do invite questions, um, but just keep that in mind um, uh, if, if that's something that you're uh, concerned about. 
So I think we'll start um, in terms of run sheet. We will do um, ESG first, um, then we'll do cyber, and then we'll do class actions. Um, and Mark, I think, is um, kindly will give us a an introduction to um, the ESG litigation landscape at the moment. Um, and in particular, ESG is such a buzzword at the moment, and a lot of people talk about the environmental, the E in the ESG. Um, and also the governance is something that perhaps people think they can wrap their arms around quite um, uh, effectively. But what about the social um, in, in the ESG? Uh, what are some examples of social risks faced by corporate Australia? Yeah, thanks, Anne, and uh, great to be here this afternoon. So we actually just had our uh, global partners conference um, a few days ago. So it was really good to be able to connect with all of the other partners, uh, including disputes partners across the network who are working on ESG issues. And it's fair to say that the emphasis really does change across jurisdictions. So I think in Australia, as you say, Anne, uh, environmental risks are very well understood here. Uh, in particular, uh, climate-related risks have really become real for many of our clients. Um, in other jurisdictions, uh, social and governance issues will be very prominent. Here in the governance space, we've obviously had a lot of uh, significant issues uh, around anti-money laundering, uh, also around climate and the way in which climate risks are managed. Uh, cyber as well has been sort of seen by ASIC as a very important uh, governance-related issue. But uh, the S within ESG has, I think in Australia at least, received a little bit less prominence. Um, what we mean by it is issues that fall beyond uh, climate and sort of standard governance issues, but might include uh, human rights, uh, First Nations engagement, uh, broader modern slavery issues. And so the types of um, actual risk that we've seen, and I think I have to be careful here as a sort of ESG person that uh, we move from the sort of buzzwords into concrete measurable risk, particularly when we're talking about risk and insurance issues. The sort of concrete risks that we've seen from a social perspective really are around uh, human rights um, in Australia and First Nations issues. So um, to take a few examples, from a uh, First Nations perspective, we've seen very significant project approvals related litigation now where you can see really major projects and in particular thinking about uh, Woodside Scarborough project or Santos's Barossa project off the Tiwi Islands where First Nations engagement issues and consultation have had a really significant effect on um, multi-billion dollar projects. Uh, if we think about modern slavery, uh, that's becoming obviously increasingly significant in terms of uh, regulatory obligations on companies. Uh, the government's just finished consulting on its um, review of the modern slavery legislation and recommended uh, reforms of it, including uh, supply chain due diligence. So uh, I think what we might see in the S space sort of going forward is a little bit of what we've seen uh, in the US, which tends to take the lead in terms of litigation as uh, sort of staying true to, to stereotype. Uh, and so in the US, there's been um, some significant litigation around the issues that I've mentioned, but also on issues such as diversity and inclusion. So uh, where companies have employment related targets, 
uh, and there's a disconnect between the relevant target and what's happening under the bonnet. So in particular, there have been class actions launched where it's said that a company has made commitments to a particular diversity target, but then in fact what's happening is that, uh, that the governance processes, the hiring processes and the targets aren't implemented internally. So that's what we mean uh, when we talk about, I guess, risks um, from a social perspective within ESG. But I think it's fair to say, Anne, that in Australia, those risks have been much less concrete than uh, the E and the G risks, uh, particularly climate. And perhaps more generally, why do you think there's such focus at the moment on ESG? How did that sort of, I don't know, is it maybe five years or seven years that it's sort of really come to the forefront of people's attention? Yeah, I think um, probably 10 years ago or so, it was badged as corporate social responsibility, as people probably remember. And that was seen as important uh, for companies, but particularly from a marketing disclosure, stakeholder engagement perspective, probably not seen as, CSR wasn't seen as really significant from a, a risk and bottom line perspective. I think what we've seen and what's really driven the change and the prominence that's been given to ESG is that it has become actually a lot more important for capital markets, debt markets, and for investors. So uh, last year we ran um, an unlocking ESG investment survey uh, of our clients, which really emphasised that I think for uh, over 90% of our respondent clients, ESG factors were relevant to their investment decisions. And I think for more than 60%, it was a critical uh, factor in uh, their investment decisions. So I think first and foremost, actually, that's what's driven the change is that there are ESG issues, whether it be uh, if, if an investee has uh, a relevant climate target, a net zero target, that's obviously increasingly prominent for investment decisions, whether it be on, on the broader social and governance factors that I've mentioned. And obviously, governance in particular is critical in terms of de-risking investments. So I think that's probably what drove it initially, but what has then followed, of course, is that there's been a hardening of uh, those uh, maybe standards and expectations into hard rules. Uh, and so in Australia in particular, um, TCFD and TNFD reporting has been um, undertaken by a lot of companies now. We're seeing, well, we will see probably from next year, the new climate-related financial disclosure standards brought in by the federal government, and that will be uh, a very significant uplift in terms of the extent of financial disclosure that needs to be undertaken by Australian companies on, on their uh, climate-related financial risks. We'll probably then see that bleeding out into broader e issues, including uh, biodiversity, nature capital, uh, and, and so on. And then following that, I think in, in the more recent sort of few years, we've seen a combination of uh, litigation risk actually materialise and regulatory enforcement risk materialise. So uh, I think as everyone in this audience would be familiar with, uh, the Australian regulators have made ESG-related issues in particular uh, greenwashing and managing climate-related uh, financial risk as a core enforcement priority. Uh, so we've seen ASIC this year uh, um, commence a number of its first uh, civil penalty proceedings in relation to uh, principally um, E issues, but also uh, broader S&G issues. So that includes 
uh, proceedings where funds have said to be uh, ESG focused have made disclosures around not being invested in certain types of industries. So that might be uh, tobacco, uh, gambling, uh, even some of the um, uh, heavy industry around um, uh, armory into uh, Russia and Ukraine. So that has actually formed the basis of some of the ASIC proceedings. Uh, we've also seen uh, activist litigation around climate, uh, which will be familiar to everyone. So uh, there are very um, uh, long-running proceedings against Santos in respect of its net zero target, and in particular challenging whether or not there's reasonable grounds for it. We've also seen other forms of um, activist litigation complaints to the Ad Standards Board uh, around ESG-related advertising. So I think that's kind of been the wave and that it sort of started with a focus from investors. There's been a little bit of a shift to a regulatory hardening. Uh, and then finally, that's been coupled with litigation and enforcement action. I should say, uh, and it looks like there's at least one or two sceptics in the room uh, from some of, some of the reactions, is that, of course, these considerations do need to be balanced against um, shareholder returns and um, other issues. And we've seen uh, a significant backlash in the US in terms of the anti-ESG movement. Uh, and so these considerations all do need to be uh, weighed up uh, together. Thank you. Um, I might then move to Paul and Guy. Um, is there, um, what would be um, the uh, insurance response or what, how would you bind that into um, what insurance can do to address those issues? I mean, there, there's a big interplay between ESG and insurance, but in one sense, it's not, that's not really new. Um, these are risks that have existed and have been covered by DNO policies, PI policies, environmental policies for a long time. But what is happening is those risks are now much more at the forefront of things and they are evolving and increasing, as, as Mark's just alluded to. So in one sense, the, the sort of the insurance approach to them is probably quite a conventional one. Um, it's really about making sure that there will no doubt be existing cover that, that policyholders have for these. Um, it's making sure that you know what that is, that you preserve sort of valuable cover going forward because as time moves on, um, insurers obviously are going to be looking at these risks closely and how exposed they, they want to or can be um, to them. So preserving existing cover and just making sure that the cover evolves as time goes on. Um, I suppose the other aspect to think about is a broader one in terms of reputation and that will impact, I think, policyholders in a few ways. Obviously, ESG risks go to the heart of a company's reputation in the marketplace. Um, so from an indirect perspective, looking at is the cover that you do have going to help support the ability to, um, to protect your reputation, whether it's around controlling the defense of claims so that you can run them in a way that potentially um, is better for your reputation than if insurers are, are controlling them or whether it's there's specific covers for things like PR expenses or, or media type expenses. 
the other side of it is that insurers are now much more focused on ESG risks and also the reputational risks that might come from having insureds who don't have a great record on, on ESG. And there's a number of insurers that have been historically targeted for projects that they're providing insurance for. So I think there's just going to need to be a lot more engagement between policyholders and insurers around um, ESG risks, how they're being managed within a business, because an insurer is going to want to understand its direct exposure to liabilities arising from those risks, but also that indirect exposure of being the insurer of a company that doesn't have a great um, ESG record. Thanks, Guy. And um, Paul, is that in line with what you're seeing in London, both perhaps on the underwriting and claims side? Hi, everyone. Yeah, um, they've asked me up here to try and give some London market perspective. And and I think probably if you think about each of your businesses, you will have been making some changes to take account of, of what Mark, Mark was describing there. Um, and also, I'm sure the vast majority of you have exposure to the London insurance market. As you know, the London insurance market is is absolutely at its at its core is about presentation of its risk, and it's probably one of the most uh, insurer friendly jurisdictions so far as the need for policyholders to to disclose their risks. So if you just think about the changes that are going on in, in, in corporates at the moment, actually making sure that those changes are captured when it comes to placement and the placement information you provide. I, I can guarantee you some clients are going to get caught out with a mismatch between what their businesses are doing and what and what their um you know and what, what actually the, the presentation being made to insurers is. Um the the other the other sort of thing I was really going to pick up on was at this stage, and I think it's 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 the same in 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 the UK. You'll have all heard of the client earth and and shell claim. I'm sure we've had a recent similar claim brought by a group of academics against the university pension uh, fund. Uh, we've got on the social side, Mark. We've got some uh, employees in someone in Dyson's uh, supply chain bringing claim in the High Court. We, we might, therefore, and most of those at the moment have, have, have been largely unsuccessful. But what, of course, they are is causing the recipients to incur huge amounts of cost. Uh, and certainly the London market uh, are very, very hard on costs, approvals. And so if you have, you know, even if you think the claim is is spurious, actually making sure that you get those cost approvals from your insurers early in the process uh, will be absolutely key. The only other issue we're, we're really seeing, and, and we've got a dispute we're handling in London on this at, at the moment, is notification issues. Again, because these might start off as regulatory investigations or activist uh, behaviour at general meetings and, and the like, um, when to notify has become a, a real issue in the London market. And obviously, speaking to the broker, actually getting a dialogue going with your insurers is, is going to be fundamental in, in that respect. Um, because obviously, the, the, the challenge is 
um, if you know, if you think something isn't going to develop, and of course then it does, then the risk is insurers will call over the history and point to that either early regulatory investigation or activist conduct as something that should have been notified. Thanks, Paul. So is it fair then to um, summarise the insurance intersection with ESG to say it's 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 a different lens through which we're looking at things, but the causes of action are understood causes of action and they're not necessarily needing new insurance products to deal with them. Is that fair? I, I, I'm, I'm happy to be challenged on this, but I, I think so. I mean, there are there are some new products emerging into the market. Um, I, I'm not well placed to understand what, what the take up is, but I've seen carbon offset insurance being advertised from the London market. I've seen um, wind and solar energy insurance being being uh, being offered. And I've seen a bit of a push on parametric insurance. For anyone who doesn't know, parametric insurance is is unlike sort of normal insurance where you have to prove a loss. This actually pays out on the on the triggering of a particular event. Now that could be a climactic event or or an earthquake or, or something like that. So you know, we we've seen the London market looking to respond, but at the moment when I'm talking to to our corporate clients and our policyholder clients, it's mainly making sure that the traditional covers are there and in place to respond. We've seen isolated uh, ESG type exclusions, very broadly drafted, but we haven't seen those really coming into mainstream policies such that they would have they're, they're anything to be too concerned about. But obviously, at placement, absolutely vital to ensure that there are no new exclusions. Um, but it's really, as you say, Anne, it, it's it's the traditional covers we're we're looking to add. Yeah. So, Mark, then maybe um, summing up, is there anything else we can do to mitigate the risk that might be posed by buzzword ESG? Yeah. So, I think I mean a lot of what we spend our time doing with clients is working on governance processes in order to try and avoid some of this stuff. And so. What I mean by that is um, helping clients to understand whether they've got good processes in place to detect potential ESG problems. So really looking ahead and thinking where, you know, having regard to my portfolio or what my business impact is, where could some of these ESG headaches, be they reputational and stakeholder or be they more material forms of litigation, where could they arise? So we often see that particularly with net zero commitments. So, um, you know, much of the ASX 100 has now made them, uh, but what processes are in place to identify within your roadmap or pathway uh, when you might have a deviation? So there might be uh, something or many things that are critical to your pathway to net zero, uh, but um, at what point do you detect uh, when those things have changed, when, when your pathway is endangered? So that's one example, but it could be many different forms of ESG issues. Uh, the second would be disclosure and due diligence, uh, and this is also sort of uh, avoiding greenwashing issues. So that's working closely with clients to think about, you know, what sort of um, statements are we making that might give rise to ESG risk, uh, particularly future statements where uh, the representor in Australia obviously bears the um, evidential burden. What sort of reasonable grounds are there for that statement? 
Increasingly, we're also seeing due diligence issues. So this is might this might be where financial institutions, super funds, or even insurers are looking at what sorts of um, commitments have been made um, by the entities that we're investing into or insuring, what sort of due diligence ought we do consistent with our own ESG commitments in order to be comfortable with that. Um, I think thirdly, there is actually as a litigator a lot of uh, work in terms of shareholder activism or ENGO activism, so uh, where we see um, uh, companies being attacked or put under scrutiny in relation to their ESG commitments or statements, and that's increasingly becoming uh, a sort of very significant issue. And then finally, uh, as Anne and Guy and Paul mentioned, um, work in relation to uh, insurance, and in particular, where you might have these instances of activism or, or litigation that um, uh, develops, uh, working with clients to ensure that um, insurers are updated appropriately. Thanks, Mark. So I think we're now going to pivot to the next topic. So what's that? I think we're running out of time. So if you have questions on ESG, we'll be hanging out around here later. So if you have questions. But putting five lawyers on a panel <laughs> and only giving them an hour was always going to be a challenge, but we'll, we, we will get there. So we're now pivoting to the next topic and I will move into the role of the interviewee. Um, so, yeah, moving on to cyber, and I get to be a moderator just for a bit. Um, <laughs> Don't ask too difficult questions. Yes. Um, so, and cyber is another topic that's garnered significant attention in the media and at board level. Why is it such a focus? Well, um, why is it a focus is obviously a, 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 an easy question because there are a lot more cyber attacks and I think you're all familiar with that. Uh, we, we read it in the press every day. Um, I was looking for something that might not be well known yet uh, to everyone. So I found um, uh, uh, something that, that the OAIC had put out and they've done a survey of um, uh, of entities that have been subjected to privacy breaches. And um, what they say is that 75% of Australians feel data breaches are one of the biggest privacy risks they face. 75% of Australians have, who have been involved in a data breach report they have experienced harm as a result, um, ranging from costs of replacing identity documents, of course, and then um, even down to... Um, uh, emotional and psychological harm. Um, but the real, I think for a lot of businesses, the real um, data point here is that um, nearly half of Australians said that they would swap provider if their provider was um, subject to a privacy data breach. Thanks, Anne. Um, and so what are the key sort of liabilities, exposures, costs that would come out of a cyber incident? Yes, I think most of them are also quite well understood and I won't, don't want to bore you with it, but I thought that sort of what we are seeing a lot um, is actually, so, you know, you'll, you'll have the incident response and the business interruption, so that's all well understood. But we are seeing now a lot of um, investigations um, that are um, increasing in, in frequency and intensity. So a lot of our clients are now needing help with the OAIC in particular, who's been giving a lot of funding and who has become um, more active. 
So we are helping clients with managing those investigations. And the OSC also obviously has the ability to issue fines, and, and those fines will be increasing um, in, in uh, severity. Um, there's a number of other regulators um, that have cyber um, at the forefront of their minds. Um, ASIC's come out, and we had, of course, the RA, RA advice matter, um, which I think has caused a few shockwaves. And um, APRA has said that it's one of the, the key priorities. So there's, I think, we'll see increasing regulator activity um, on the cyber front. Then, sort of some, some areas, liability areas, that are also perhaps not thought about that much are the remediation or the, the consumer claims that are coming. A lot of companies are obviously trying to be at the forefront and they try to remediate customers. So that is something that um, we're helping clients with and how is that being managed properly. Um, and then there is the ability through the OAIC to make um, uh, a, a complaint by customers so customers can go to the OAC because there's no direct right at the moment to make a breach for, for a, 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 to make a claim for a privacy breach as such. Um, there's obviously shareholder class actions that may come out of it. We also have seen some um, uh, product slash customer class actions, but again, I think it's difficult there. I think the causes of action are quite difficult because, you know, it would be a misleading deceptive conduct claim or I think there was sort of an amorphous uh, breach of confidence claim. Um, so I think that's quite difficult still um, to push through um, and to, to make out the cause of action. Because one of the things that it will be difficult is to prove the loss in those scenarios. So if you've had your data stolen, what what is What's your harm unless you can point to something quite specific? Um, supply chain or um, sort of outsourcing of IT functions is another issue that we're dealing with in the aftermath of, of cyber attacks. So um, you have the app developer and the cyber breach happened on the app. So how, how you know, who's responsible for that? And, you know, the, the, the company might try to um, get some redress from the from the developer. So those sort of issues are coming out as well. We've seen precisely that issue translate into a significant insurance claim as well. Again, not keeping pace with what a company's doing in that it, what the claim we've got in London is we, the client outsourced a lot of its, its IT, uh, but then that actually didn't get tracked through to the policy. And so then obviously the policy when when actually the, the, the claim was made was only talking about impairment of their own systems and insurers have declined the claim on the basis that it wasn't their systems that were that were actually impaired, it was the it was the outsource. So again it's you know it's actually keep it keeping pace with, with the fast paced change of your businesses that's that's key. Yeah. And silly question for a lawyer: Is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? <laughs> oh, I think it's. I think everyone's expecting it to get worse. Um, uh, so both, obviously, in terms of the the number of cyber breaches or cyber attacks, as well as, um, you know, with that comes the regulator scrutiny and and the class actions and all of that. So, I think that will um, occupy us for some time to come. Um, Paul, maybe. 
if you were able to give a couple of perspectives, just I know you've talked about specific claims, but sort of more generally um, in the UK and EU, are there things we can we can learn from that on cyber? Well, on the non-insurance side, we'll talk about insurance in a minute. I, I think the main focus in the UK and the EU is on delivering resilience. Um, and you know, that's that that's really the, th the 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 focus of the regulators, and the other is data. Um, the UK has adopted the EU General Data Protection Regulation um, in in very very pretty much identical form. Um, I know clients are very focused on their providers and and having to insist on you know, ISO standardisation for data protection. Uh, we're asked regularly by clients how where we're holding their data. Uh, and, and those sort of things. I mean, that, that's that's really the hot topics in the UK, as well as obviously the overriding cyber threat. Thanks, Paul. Um, so moving on to the, the sort of insurance side of things, um, in cyber risk, uh, uh, a big talking point, as is um, cyber insurance. Uh, maybe, Anne, you could just, if you could just give us a sort of brief overview of what, what, what does cyber policies cover? Yeah, so... Uh, I apologize to many of you in the room that are <laughs> experts in this, but just sort of uh, in a nutshell, there's no one cyber policy as such that covers all those um, risks, of course. As I've outlined, they're, they're, they're very varied. And we do now have cyber policies, but the cyber policy, policies um, typically cover things like uh, the incident response. And then um, you, you know, depending on what your needs are, you then get into the BI cover and, and, and you purchase additional cover. But then for the um, continuous disclosure issues, um, you, you might have the, the Site C cover or for um, DNO issues, you know, you, for the directors themselves, you might have um, uh, your Site A and B. But I think what sort of emerged is that the um, cyber policies themselves are still drafted, there's no sort of uniform way, you know, like you might have an ISR policy, but there's no sort of uniform way and they're very um, sort of specific in the wording. So as, as Paul has alluded to, you know, they, they uh, still require, have quite narrow definitions and then the question is, does it actually, is it covered by that definition or not? Um, so we'll see how that develops and maybe as I think there's a bit of a softening in the market at the moment, so maybe that means that we find that the cover um, gets broader as well and that it's a it's, it's a broader um, definition of the trigger and, and fewer exclusions. I don't know. But um, I think the key one is to, and again, most of you will know this, but the key one is to map your program, understand what where your um, exposure is what you're most worried about and then making sure that there's no gaps between the cyber, the crime, say, your DNO um, and, and your other policies. I think that's the, the number one thing that I see in the practice that the client has a cyber attack and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got this cyber policy. And then you read it and you find it doesn't cover that specific loss. So that's something to be most mindful of, I think. Um, Paul, maybe you could sort of give us a, a few insights from the, the London market, just more generally on, on cyber claims. Sure. So I think the 
the London market's obviously, unsurprisingly, seeing a lot of cyber claims. I think a lot of lower value claims uh, are being paid, um, including ransomware. The ones, obviously, that uh, we we tend to see tend to be the sort of larger incidents, and those are just as susceptible to coverage issues as as any other. Uh, what sorts of things are we are we seeing being discussed at a coverage level? Well, one is, of course, in any incident like this, it's time critical, and engagement with early engagement with insurers absolutely fundamental. So approvals for the providers that are going to be used. Um, thing we've seen things go wrong where the company paying for the sort of rectification is not the company that's actually suffered the the incident, and therefore insurers are saying, well, that's not a company that the company that suffered the incident hasn't suffered the loss. Um, we've seen issues around. Uh, we've seen insurers raising issues around sanctions um, in relation to some threat actors. Uh, recently, we've seen uh, the war and terrorism exclusion come into the London market, focused on nation-state activism. That's gone through its second iteration after the first iteration was seen as too too insurer-friendly. Um, that anecdotally led to quite a lot of business heading its way over to the US. Um, I think the position is slightly more balanced now. Um, but so that I think probably the other few things we've seen is well-meaning CEOs saying things at the outset of these sorts of incidents about things that they will uh, do by way of uh, recompense that actually insurers really wouldn't have would rather not have been said at the time. Um, and so actually getting insurance sort of in the conversation in the room um, at, at the time of the crisis, I think is 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 not always the case what we're seeing. The other thing, frankly, is regulators are sometimes making unhelpful comments, which uh, insurers try and pick up on. And, and the last one, which is really quite a hot topic at the moment, is um, insurability of fines. Mm -hmm. And so we're I think it won't be long before you see some cases come up around insurability of fines. Um, my, my personal view is that's all we're going to go back to the the conduct, um, and and there's nothing actually inherently wrong with insuring a fine. But obviously, if there's some form of illegality, I won't use the Latin tag for being risk of being accused of being English uh, English what's it or whatever. So we'll. Um, but uh, the um, uh, the you know any sort of hint of illegality, I think, could 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 be jumped upon in relation to that. So those are really the sort of hot topics. But as I say, it's it's a market that's I think operating reasonably well. I think the scale of the ransomware attacks, especially during the pandemic, led to the hard market. Um, but I think we're seeing that soften a bit as well. Thanks, Paul. Um uh, and then just to close off this topic, um, just thinking more generally about risk mitigation, um, Anne, is there, like what, what should companies be doing ahead of time um, to, to, to mitigate these sorts of risks? I think it's a very simple answer. Um, again, it might sound a bit trite, but it's just being prepared. That's 
that's the number one thing. So have your um, cyber playbook ready. Um, have thought about um, who makes decisions when. The board doesn't need to make all the decisions. Delegate to the management that everybody knows what they're doing. Um, have thought about, well, if I have a ransom request, am I going to pay it or not? And who makes that decision? Um, you know, in the few hours that you have to respond before before the, the, the number goes up. Um, you don't want to start that conversation for the first time with, within your organization. So it's just about being prepared. And the same is, is true what I said about the, the insurance program, prepared in the sense of know which risk is covered where. Um, that, I think, is a pretty... Yeah, straightforward. And, and I suppose there's there's two levels of preparation. There's being prepared on paper, um, but the, the the other aspect presumably is running actual scenarios in real time. Um, and there's at the back of the room, you'll see there's a um, a recent cyber survey that that we did, and there's there's obviously a lot of education going on at board level and elsewhere around cyber. But when it comes to running actual um, effectively scenarios where you have, um, you know, you have the board in a room and they're getting them to respond to a, a cyber event in real time, then the numbers are quite different between those. You drop off in terms of that real practical hands-on experience. So ultimately that's, that's going to be more important sometimes than having everything on, on paper and having everyone educated. That's right. Yeah. So I'm back. Yeah. And in um, 13 minutes, we're going to race through class actions. <laughs> so Mel, um, a lot of people will be familiar with shareholder class actions. Is that still the focus, the main focus of funders, or what are we seeing in the market? I mean, the short answer is yes, I think. And look, it's no surprise that they leave class actions to the end because if we run out of time, it's good because no one wants to hear about us, right? Because it's a drain <laughs> on the business. It's a drain on the insurers. It's drain on everyone's time. It's a three to four year drain on the current trends, right? So it's a significant issue. Um, <clears throat> and one thing you'll have heard us and others say is that uh, the class action promoters are entrepreneurial, right? Um, and so we're not going to see any drop off in class actions. I've got the, you know, the, the highline stats are, you know, FY23, 53 class actions filed. So we're still running at that rate. That's not just shareholder, but we're still running at that rate of one a week, right, filed. So they're not going anywhere. Shareholder class actions have been what I'll call the bread and butter. Um, you know, the high point 2018, 2019, where it was really the, the highest, most common um, type of class action being filed. We see some movement around the numbers, but it's it's there. It's not going anywhere. Um, most of those cases relate to earnings guidance. So every year, every listed company needs to tell us what is happening, what twice a year, what's happening half year, what's happening full year with their projections. And, you know, it's, it's watched very closely by funders and the plaintiff firms alike to see if there are any deviations. So we'll talk a little bit about some of the new types of class actions, but for that reason um, and some others that I, I might touch on later, the shareholder class actions aren't going anywhere. Going to stay. So what are those new types and, and of class actions and, and what sort of issues do they throw up that are different to maybe the shareholder class action uh, responses? 
So what we have seen for a long time is that class actions will follow the trends that are happening, right? So, and that's partly because of, as I've mentioned, one thing that the class actions promoters look at, uh, you know, the, the annual results, what's the earnings guidance, other things they're looking at are their product recalls, right? They're scanning the market for things. The other key source is what are the regulators looking at? What are the regulators investing, investigating? What are their findings, right? So that's why it was no surprise that we saw that slight uptick in 2018, 2019 off the back of one of the largest regulatory events we'd seen, right, with the Financial Services Royal Commission. Um, but we see so many regula regulators increasing their involvement. So we've got ASIC, right, That's that's been a feature for a while, ACCC, we now have the OAIC dealing with the data and privacy related issues. I've had a couple of class actions now relating to Austrac's role in investigating, you know, the AML space, um, employment, their work ombudsman. Um, so what we will see is class actions continuing to follow whatever the trends are. Is it ESG? Is it data? Where are the regulators looking? That's also where your class action promoters are looking. So in terms of what are the types, it's exactly those things. We're seeing um, employment class actions increasing. We are seeing the data and cyber class actions increasing. Terrifyingly there, we're seeing not just one type, but two types. So as you alluded to, Han, where you're a listed organisation and you have to announce that there's been a major data breach, what happens is a massive share price reaction. And so that, again, is, is the, the, the classic territory of your shareholder class action. So you might be running that, um, which is the standard class action framework, just with a cyber subject matter, but then you also have what we're calling the customer, which is me trying to seek redress for any loss I might have suffered um, as a result of that data breach. Now, the bread and butter of the shareholder class actions, we're all very familiar with that. You know, it's usually two-pronged, continuous disclosure, misleading and deceptive conduct, well-trodden law, not just in the shareholder class action framework. But what we are seeing with employment, ESG, cyber and data, is not just through the class actions framework, but as just a matter of general law, quite novel legal questions being raised. So this question of is there actually a right, uh, um, a right that you can litigate against for uh, an invasion of privacy at the moment? No, in the future, quite possibly. So in the meantime, though, those bringing these types of claims are looking to frame new things. Is there an economic loss? In some cases, no, or it's a it's a smaller type of loss than other types of claims, more regularly litigated. So it's, you know, the cost and expense of um, having your licence reissued or missing days of work to deal with administrative issues like that. Um, but what we're seeing is it's this area of non-economic loss. Is there distress, frustration, um, anxiety related to people who have maybe have suffered a real uh, a real personal loss by reason of their private health or um, employment or residential data being made public. So that is something that's not yet tested, but will be shortly. So I think new issues, new areas of law, and also I think a bit of a procedural juggle of trying to manage multiple things at once, whether it be multiple class actions or regulator interest while there's a class action on foot. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
Paul, we've we've just I think as Mark alluded to, we've just been at the the conference to to meet some of our uh, global partners, and I've learnt there about the new uh, EU directive on um, collective action uh, to protect consumers. Um, so that's being implemented in the European countries. What what's sort of the landscape in in the UK? Oh, well, we're we're happily copying you. Um, <laughs> uh, so exactly as Mel just said. Um, I mean, if you'd asked me 10 years ago to talk about class actions, I wouldn't have been able to say anything. Um, but but now we've got a very active uh, litigation funding market. We've got specialist claimant firms, firms such as Lee Day, Stewart's Law, who are you know absolutely looking at exactly the same issues. Um, so we've had we've had shareholder class actions um, in the UK. That's under Section 90 or Section 90A of our Financial Services Markets Act. Um, we've had claims uh, in relation to all the diesel uh, emissions scandal that you'd have read about, started with VW, but we've got claims now against Mercedes, threatened claims against uh, Toyota. Um, we're doing, we've got the um, Fundau Dam, the BHP uh, class action. That's 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 happening in 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 London as, as, as well as obviously over here. Um, what's excited a lot of claimant lawyers is our competition and markets authority has developed an opt out process, which most of these group litigation orders in the UK are, are opt in. But we've got now, um, if you can allege competition breach, we've got the ability to, to bring opt out and some of the big tech Companies have been hit by those in the UK. Um, we're handling claims for Google, uh, Amazon, and Meta, all arising out of CMA uh, in earlier investigations. So yes, it, it, it's it's absolutely picked up um, a pace. And as I say, we we've now got a class actions team in in London, whereas we wouldn't have had even five years ago. So we. In Australia, we um, we have seen a bit of a softening of the DNO market that was very, um, very, very hard for a long time. Um, Guy, what do you think these developments will will mean for the local DNO market? Yeah, so uh, the 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 historical position sort of tied to to as Mel was saying the the high point of securities class actions and the impact on DNO that that's been the subject of a lot of um a, a lot of debate it's made its way into sort of discussions in parliamentary inquiries all those sorts of things but th that sort of extreme hardening of the market does appear now to be um it's it sort of it's tailed off and what we're now hearing is sort of pretty big 20 30% 50% premium reductions um, on DNO at, at recent renewals, the the thing that's interesting is none of that actually seems to be directly related to the, the underlying risk or a perception that the the risk of class actions is abating. It, it's much more related to market cycles. Just there's more capacity, there's more competition. It's driving prices down because companies are still buying um, significant limits on DNO. Um, I suppose my, I think I'll let Paul maybe talk to Cyber in a second, but 
I think what concerns me a little bit is 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 sort of the market going back to what did happen in sort of 2016 onwards, where there'll suddenly need to be a further correction if 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 the the premiums are not set at a sustainable level, and the volatility is, I think, unpalatable probably for everyone. Um, so it will be interesting to see where the market goes just in terms of, yeah, I think sort of trying to maintain a, a connection between the, the, the premium pricing and the, the ongoing risk that, as Mel says, is, is not looking to tail off. I think that's a, a good point. And Anne and I were chatting with a client about a very similar issue yesterday. I, I, I mean, just so you know, Australian DNO was a very uh, directed off to exposure was a very rude word in London for many, many years. I mean, it really was, you know, that insurers were very concerned about uh, obviously potential clients, Australian um, exposure. And uh, I, I am also surprised to be hearing, obviously, we're not at the front line of this, but this 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 drop off of, of, of the hardening of, of the market and the dramatic lowering of rates, because Certainly, if you look at the the amount of funding that's being raised, uh, I, I don't see where that I don't see where that is is coming from. I I know the, about the extra capacity. I also wonder whether the what we again understand anecdotally the tailing off of the buying of side C cover might be giving insurers some confidence. Whether that side C cover will be available at the same at the same discounted cost, well. The brokers in the room can probably assist us with that, but you know, not not I, but I think that's sort of certainly part of it. Thanks, Paul. Um, I'm determined to finish on time. So, Mel, one minute on what can you do to prevent be, being subject of a class action? You've got the answer in one minute. Yeah, great. Because I mean, it's look, no one is not trying to mitigate their class action risk, right? Everyone is focusing so acutely on it. And in all my time, I've never once been involved in a case where, you know, if we'd advised our clients at the outset, or, you know, please just don't make any misleading or deceptive representations to the market, that they wouldn't have had a class action. This isn't an issue where we're dealing with wrongdoing most of the time, right? It's, um, well, in my experience, never is their wrongdoing. And so this is class action promoters often looking at things with hindsight, saying you could have done this better or you could have done this differently and you should have known it at the time. So it's slightly unhelpful on my part to say uh, the best way to avoid a class action is to avoid the event that triggers it. Because as I say, companies are already trying to avoid that. They're trying to make sure they are not underpaying their employees. They're trying to make sure that their data systems are rigorous and defensible. They're trying to make sure that their budgets and forecasts align with their actuals. Um, and what we do have, unfortunately, at the moment in Australia is a class action market that is really a hotbed for commencing the actions. So um, there are some things we can try and do, which is, you know, just best practice that our corporates are already well aware of, you know, the systems and processes point. 
the making sure you, you're keeping on top of what's best practice for data, cyber, ESG, so that you can make sure that the processes and the way you're considering these issues is reasonable. We're not looking for perfection, but you know, reasonableness is the is the is the test point. I could talk about this all day, but I'm getting the wrap up. So that is something we can talk about a little bit more if you're interested in how we can try and mitigate the risks or things we can do that in the event you are faced with one, how do you put yourself then in the best position to try and defend it? And I'm going to keep you from a drink for literally one minute, only to make my two favourite points based on doing this for far too too many years. Um, the the first is, please, please don't assume your lawyers understand insurance and the structure of insurance. The times I, one of the main things I end up dealing with is lawyers who just have one file and that file is defending the company and it's defending the directors. And then when it comes to costs, well, we go, well, obviously the costs of defending the company are going to, well, you might get them over here. You would get the cost for defending the directors over here. Um, uh, how are we going to go about splitting that? So please make sure at the outset, um, you actually make sure that whichever lawyer you're talking to has understood the covers that, that might be available. And the second one is, look, the most of these, I, I understand from, from Guy that, that we've had a few class actions that have, have come, come to trial in this jurisdiction, um, but, but most, the vast majority settle and you'll want insurers with you um, when that settlement conversation comes. One of the absolute mistakes I see time and time again is keeping insurers at arm's length and not bringing them on the journey with you. Um, I would never advocate that. You will find that certainly US lawyers are very concerned about privilege issues, but those really should be capable of being managed. An insurer with a reserve in its books is a far more likely insurer that will actually then help you when this claim comes to get settled than an insurer who's brought in, you know, at the last at the last moment. Those are my two hot topics. Fantastic. I think that's great to finish up on that. So um, it just, uh, I just wrap it up. Thank you to the panel. Uh, thank you, Mark Mel, Paul and Guy. And thank you for some helpers, which I don't think are here, but um, Julia, Bridget and Jamie Lee. And thank you to you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. And we'll stick around. So if there's any questions, we didn't have time for questions, but we'll be happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you.